This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. So happy to have you listening. Let's start off with a line of wisdom for this episode, and that is, don't sweat the petty things, pet the sweaty things, from none other than George Carlin. What a genius. Check out his workflow, his creative process. An amazing comedian, an amazing thinker, and an awesome haircut. Moving on, this particular episode is for all the nerds out there, all the dorks out there, all the biohackers out there, or really anyone who's interested in life extension, the dangers and promises of supplements, performance enhancement, all that kind of stuff. And quite frankly, you should be interested in that stuff. My guest is none other than Rhonda Patrick, PhD, friend of mine who works with Dr. Bruce Ames, who's famous for uh, developing a number of tests. And he's also the 23rd most cited scientist in all fields between 1973 and 1984. More than a decade. That's nuts. Dr. Patrick, Rhonda in this case, also conducts clinical trials, has performed aging research at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and did graduate research at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which I highly recommend you donate some money to. I've done some work with their uh, child genome project. And there she focused on cancer, mitochondrial metabolism, and apoptosis. So she's very, very smart. She is uh, very, very well-armed with data. She knows how to perform research, and she knows how to translate it for a lay audience. We do get deep in the weeds in a few spots, and what I would say is just bear with us grit your teeth, listen through it, maybe listen to it at two or three X speed, 
and you will find nuggets in this podcast, in this episode, that make it very worth the listen. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Bluehost, which is the hosting company I used to host my very first website, very first blog, and uh, they're very strong with WordPress. So check out what they have to offer, and you can find special offers for listeners of this podcast at bluehost.com forward slash Tim. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to Rhonda Patrick, and thank you so much for listening. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. There we go. Okay, cool. And we are live at another spectacular, well, I shouldn't say that, another Fascinating, for me at the very least, episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. Dr. Rhonda Patrick is here with me. How did we first connect? How did that come together? We first connected because originally I read your book, The 4-Hour Workweek, in the sauna, no less. That's where all the trouble starts. I read it in the sauna in graduate school. Of course, the book fell apart because of the heat. <laughs> right. Um, Glue in saunas. So I first came aware of you. I was like, this guy's pretty cool. And we kind of think alike in terms of some of the scientific thinking and also efficiency mm-hmm. and uh, I moved to the Bay Area and I got in touch with Wellness FX oh, because that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I thought they were really cool. I'm like, this is great. I love the idea of quantifying different levels of minerals, vitamins, hormones, lipid profiles, being able to, to measure what you're doing at baseline and then make dietary changes and then measure again, cut out the middleman of the, the physician who most of the time doesn't know a lot about nutrition, right? And uh, so I, I went to this event that Wellness FX had, Fireside Talk, where you had oh, that's attended, right? With Justin Major, Justin Major, mm-hmm. who uh, that's where I first became aware of him. I don't really know much about him, but right. um, I I became friends with uh, Jim Kane. Yeah, and so Jim's a beast. Jim's cool. Dude, yeah. He's really cool. Yeah, for um, those of you who don't know, so Jim was the CEO of Wellness Effects. I think he's fifty or fifty-one, and the guy can do like twenty handstand push-ups outplay me in any possible sport. I mean, he's... he's Guinness Book of World Record holder, which, by the way, I share that in common with him. Wait a second. All right, so hold on. So so we're going to come back to that. So Jim is... Bruce Lee wanted to be the fittest 50-year-old in the world. He didn't make it that long. Uh, But I would say Jim has to be at the very top. I think he's currently training for the Masters division at the CrossFit Games. And uh, just an incredible human being. So I didn't realize that... uh, I'd forgotten that you were at the, the Fireside Chat. So... Guinness Book of World Records. Tell me about this. I was a professional jump roper when I was a young <laughs> child. <laughs> I know. Wow. It, All right. It's not a very common thing that people are professional yeah. at, but I was. And I started jumping rope when I was seven, and I joined this international rope skipping organization where I was basically doing demonstrations at like SeaWorld, LA, uh, traveling around the world, starting jump rope teams at different schools, Did got into commercials when I was a kid because I was just that good at it. and um, Were you a solo jump roper, was, or was that a team? Oh, yeah. It was a team, but I, we do solo. We did team stuff. And I got into the Guinness Book of World Record multiple times because of a teamwork where we, every year at Jump Rope Camp in yeah. Denver, Colorado, would cram a bunch of people under one long rope. Uh, and we could jump the many, as, as many times, uh, have I the see. most people jumping as many times, and we'd break our world record every year. Got it. So I was probably in it like four or five times when I was <laughs> nine, 10, 11. So 
<laughs> yeah. That's amazing. It, well, where did you grow up? I grew up in San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. The jump rope capital of the world. Nah, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> Not so much. Definitely the surfing capital. I was a surfer as well, but. So let's let's uh, sort of flash forward then from the, the, the jump roping empire to your scientific career. Uh, for those people who might not know you, what's just a, sort of a, a brief number of bullets in terms of uh, some of the credibility points that you bring to the table with this type of thing? Uh, some, some people may be familiar with your work through uh, visiting your site or your, your Twitter handle. Uh, of course, you also did a guest post on my blog uh, related to heat adaptation and uh, how to use hyperthermic conditioning for endurance and, and other type of purposes. But for those people who don't have any baseline, like what are, what are some of the bullets? Bullets are, so I was a biochemistry chemistry major at UCSD and decided that I wanted to get a, a, go, to, go to graduate school, but I wanted to get experience in biology. So I worked at the Salk Institute for Biological mm-hmm. Sciences for two years where I did research on aging using small nematode C. elegans worms where I could genetically ma- manipulate them and extend their lifespan by like twofold, mm-hmm. you know. And so then I, I loved biology at that point when I was just like, wow, this is so cool. So I decided to go to graduate school. Uh, I wanted to do cancer research, and specifically I was interested in pediatric cancer, so I mm-hmm. went to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And I trained there for six years, did research on mitochondrial metabolism and apoptosis and its relationship to cancer. Uh, got a really good paper, nature cell biology paper out of that. And then I decided that I wanted to try, I wanted to apply this, these really good scientific techniques and all this knowledge I'd learned in graduate school and I wanted to do clinical research, but I wanted to bring real science to clinical research. What does that mean? Well, sometimes clinical research involves looking at some endpoint like, you know, myocardial infarction or a heart attack or some sort of um, event that occurs and they don't really look at mechanism. So I decided that I was going to try to use some of these techniques that I learned from doing mouse work, from doing you know, cell culture where you're, like, you're teasing apart pathways and doing all these, you know, looking at mechanistic interactions. I decided I want to apply that to people. Uh-huh. And you can do that by getting blood cells right. and you know, looking at what's going on inside their body through this lens of what's going on in their blood cells. Right. And so that's kind of what led me to go to the lab that I went to with Bruce Ames, who also is um, very interested in nutrition and micronutrients, which is another interest of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think preventative medicine, I think preventing micronutrient deficiencies, things like in magnesium, vitamin K, mm-hmm. you know, vitamin D, these essential minerals and vitamins that we need for a variety of different biochemical pathways in our body. I think that these deficiencies over time cause insidious damage that rears its head as age-related diseases later, like cancer and neurodegenerative diseases, type 2 diabetes, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be a great match, and it was, I have no doubt that I made the, the right decision. Um, and your mentor was, let me get this right, what was he, the most, most or second most cited? The most cited. The most cited. In, from, you know, I'm probably going to botch this as well. It was like ten, over a 10-year period. Decade. Right, in all... In all of fields. That's ridiculous. So it is ridiculous. That, that's that's crazy. He's yeah. he's pretty awesome. He's 85 years old now. He used to be the chairman of the biochemistry department at Berkeley, and he's professor emeritus there. But he moved his lab because he's 
he was always on the forefront of translational research. He moved his lab to Children's Hospital because, you know, you can work with MDs and we get a lot of patients. What do you samples. mean by translational research in this case? Are you talking about DNA? Or are we talking Translational about- research means applying mechanistic uh, discoveries that we find in science by, you know, doing a lot of mouse model work into practice into practice where oh, okay. we're like Got it. you know getting, getting going from the lab to, to the, the hospital or exactly the Got exactly it. okay now this makes sense so you know i've i've uh, read your work and followed your work for a while now uh, and have have found exactly that type of translation what makes a lot of what you do interesting to me and I think applicable to other people. Now, of course, there are many other people who prematurely jump from sort of theory to practice, sometimes looking at, say, um, uh, what would it be? I I always mess these up. In vitro, translating sort of in vitro to... uh, In vivo. In vivo. Yeah. uh, Prematurely. But uh, the let, let's talk about the micronutrient inadequacies because yeah. I've, I've noticed, for instance, uh, and this was chronicled in the Four Hour Body a bit, but identifying micronutrient deficiencies in my case uh, had a very dramatic selenium deficiency, which uh, adversely affected testosterone production among other things. Um, so, what causes these micronutrient? Uh, inadequacies or deficiencies. I mean, vitamin D, magnesium, vitamin K. Obviously, vitamin D gets a lot of play in the media. Right. But uh, what what are the causes? Like, why do people not get enough of these? Assuming, let's just say for the sake of argument, that they're not consuming purely empty calories. Right. So if they're not on the fast, you know, the McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, right. breakfast, well, lunch, dinner that, diet. Clear. Uh, so, you know, the... The reality is, is that if we're talking about when I say micronutrient inadequacy versus a deficiency, you know, I'm not talking about someone that is when you're really deficient and you're at the, at the point where you're having a clinical, you know, manifestation of that deficiency, for example, vitamin C and scurvy, right. you know, you're not, when you, when you have scurvy, you're not, that's not the first sign of deficiency. That's pre-mortality. I mean, that's yeah. the sign okay. that you're going so, to die. So inadequacy could mean it's in the labs within the quote normal range, but mm-hmm. it's not not Where necessarily. Would, okay. Inadequacy means you're not so deficient that you're going to have a clinical symptom that's measurable, like okay. your gums are falling out. Yeah. But you will, for example, not be making collagen properly. Right. Because that's what vitamin C is a cofactor for. Right. So in the case of you know micronutrients like, like magnesium, vitamin K, so magnesium is at the center of a chlorophyll molecule, so it's found in dark green leafy vegetables. You know, you need men need around 400 milligrams a day. Women, about 320 or so. And people aren't meeting those requirements because they're not actually eating enough of the foods that have magnesium. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. You know, there's also a lot of confounding factors. Athletes often sweat out more, so they actually require more than non-athletes. And then you have things like magnesium being tied up in phytates, which is like the phosphorus. Right. Uh, source and plants, and that is hard for us to digest, or our absorption isn't that, you know, we still get it, yeah. but it's not as bioavailable. Right. And there's a lot of things. I think mostly the number one thing is we aren't eating enough dark green leafy bean, greens. Got it. And for that, for magnesium, mm-hmm. magnesium is essential for about 300 different enzymes in your body. Yeah. And 
we, in our lab, we have uh, a theory which we are now starting to prove, which is called the triage theory. Yeah. And what this theory is, is that, you know, during our evolution, we went through periods of starvation where, you know, we couldn't get enough food. And, you know, we, there are these periodic points where we go through starvation. We think that our body has very strategically set up um, mechanisms that it can ration micronutrients to the proteins and enzymes in our body that are essential for survival, for reproduction, the sodium potassium pump, you're yep. clotting, you don't want to, you know, hemorrhage out. So all these proteins that require micronutrients for short-term survival get the pick, their, their pick first. Whereas ones like enzymes involved in DNA repair, which repair DNA damage, well, DNA damage accumulates over time and that doesn't end, you know, have a problem until the fifth or sixth decade in your life. Right. So well we started past, to test Well past it. your Darwinian usefulness. Exactly. Right. And we started to test this. We were looking at, if you look, you know, cofactors, the way they work, you have enzymes in your body and these enzymes mm -hmm. are what are doing everything. You have a DNA repair enzyme that needs magnesium there's a, there's a binding constant that, that protein will bind to this cofactor, to this mineral at a certain rate. And so you can look at proteins that are involved, for example, vitamin K that's involved in the clotting of your blood versus other proteins that require vitamin K, which are involved in making sure you're, you don't get a calcification in your bloodstream. So mm -hmm. clotting is a very essential short-term survival protein. As I just mentioned, you don't want to hemorrhage out mm -hmm. versus this other uh, protein that's involved that needs vitamin K to work is essential to make sure you don't have calcification of the arteries. Well, that's something that doesn't rear its head till later in life. Right. You know, so we look at the binding constants of those two proteins, sure enough, the one that's involved in clotting has a much tighter binding, so more of it's going going to that yeah. protein. Got it. And so what we think is going on, so mm -hmm. let me just mention about 60% of the US population doesn't have inadequate has inadequate levels of vitamin K. 45% of the US population has inadequate levels of magnesium. For my own Clarification. So it, it would seem then, in this particular case, if you have an inadequate intake of magnesium or vitamin K, that the what you do consume will be shunted to these short-term needs, but you'll suffer the consequences of a then uh, non-suboptimal level of DNA repair, for instance. Exactly. Which could lead to mutations that lead to cancer. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. And with the vitamin K... You'll have calcification in arteries, which can lead to cardiovascular diseases, can lead to vas brain vascular diseases. Mm. So what we think is going on is there is these micronutrient inadequacies are causing what we call insidious damage, where it's just a little bit of damage every day. Just over, war of attrition. Right. It's just, it's just going on, going on, going on. And by the time you're 50, 60 years old, you start to come down with these age-related diseases. They're age-related diseases for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know. So we think that getting people up to snuff on their micronutrient intake mm -hmm. will is a very important role in preventative medicine because right. we're going to pre instead of trying to patch someone up after they're falling apart we're going to extend the healthier part of their life so extend yeah. their health span it's and also very i mean it's very difficult to acutely reverse a chronic condition it, it that is it, that has reached a precipitation point where you're exhibiting massive symptoms like alzheimer's what do you? What would you suggest consuming for vitamin K, for instance? 
Vitamin K is also um, in plants, yeah. uh, dark dark plants. Vitamin K, vitamin K one is K two. You'd find in fermented, right? Like natto, I think. Yeah, natto. But your if your liver, or if your kimchi, you're, or... right? Kimchi, I think maybe has some some levels of it as well. But yeah. uh, most people don't eat kimchi and and not too natto. Much, yeah. Is it natto or natto? It's I, it's well natto. Natto. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because yeah, yeah, you're a Japanese. But Japanese. yeah, it, most Americans are not going to eat natto. Right. For sure, it is. <laughs> I mean, Japanese feed natto to foreigners as, a, as like a parent might feed a child like a lime to see them make funny faces. So I'd, I'd guess most Americans are not going to eat that. But uh, I mean, you could I, I, fermented food sources. If you yes. want to really go off the deep end with that, you can read Weston Price's stuff. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's very much for the fermented foods. But you were saying, so, so green... Yeah, you convert K1 vegetables. to K2 in your liver. So yeah. I mean... Let your liver do the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see a problem with that. You know, it's, it's sure. But no, no, I'm fine with letting yeah, your liver do what it does I, best. I, right. You want to keep your liver happy, so if so, your liver's working, it should do. So it. green leafy vegetables. Green leafy vegetables are really good for magnesium and vitamin K. What does your diet currently look like? I know you mentioned because I did a bit of uh, inadvertent intermittent fasting today. What what is what is your daily? food look like? I mean, you mentioned the smoothie. I mean, I'd love, I'm sure people would love to hear about that. I do. I highly recommend, I have a Vitamix, but I mean, whatever your favorite yeah. blender of choice is, I mean, whatever, I don't blend tech, you know, yeah. whatever it is you like. A blender that basically has a good, you know, Yeah, power, power. powerful motor. Exactly. Yeah, the Vitamix for you guys, I do have a Vitamix. I put off getting one for 15 years, and now I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, it'll it'll outlive me. It's gonna last forever. <laughs> right. Yeah. I use it every day, and what I do is right before in the morning, I make a, a smoothie that consists of um, a lot of kale, spinach, spinach or chard, depending on what I have, two large carrots, a tomato, avocado, and then I put an apple, banana. I, the avocado and banana are really nice because it gives the consistency of a smoothie. Right. And like frozen berries or, you know, sometimes I'll switch out with different citrus fruits. Almond milk. Almonds are really high in magnesium. Almond mm. milk. I like unsweetened because I don't want a bunch of yeah. extra crap. Yeah. So I get unsweetened almond milk and, you know, sometimes I'll put my protein powder or glutamine, you know. Right. I, my gut likes glutamine, so. Yeah, I, I take glutamine on an empty stomach almost every morning. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I blend it up and that... That is my breakfast, brings me into lunch. Lunch, I usually have leftovers from, yeah. from dinner. I try to eat pretty healthy. What might I, that look like? It could be some leftover salmon Kentucky and spinach no, or, you know, I, yeah. turkey chili. Yeah. So, you know, it's... It, okay. Pretty much along the paleo-ish lines. Yeah, you know, I'm not quite certain on all the paleo well i want i'm gonna i'm gonna get to i want to ask you about some common misconceptions slash exaggerations well i may or may not know because i'm certain i i don't know really exactly what paleo is honestly i think that it meat meat and berries and vegetables and not processed foods that's kind of my understanding i haven't really read a lot about it it makes sense to me but but it, it appears that in general you're avoiding refined carbohydrates i do consuming a lot of green and getting a, a spectrum of colors in the exactly diet. a spectrum of colors just yeah. that's my good way to go good way to go exactly uh, the as it relates to diet I'm, I'm curious to know if you have any thoughts on the somewhat religious fervor with which a lot of paleo folks rally against phytic acid, saponins, and so on. Yeah. Um, I, at one point, tried to do a little bit of reading on that, and yeah. I just 
I didn't find the phytic acid convincing enough for me to start Dedicate. cooking my kale and then blending it or right. so. But you know, I haven't done extensive research on that, so right. I can't say for sure. Yeah. It's you know not a great thing to do, or it is right. a great thing. I, I really personally, I just go with my raw kale. I mean, okay. I, I haven't convinced myself. Okay, <laughs> all right, no worries. So there, there are a couple of things that uh, related to this we could talk about, right? So take magnesium for instance. So there are many people out there, I'm sure, who take magnesium supplementation. Right. Ditto for selenium, ditto for fill in the blank. I mean, this right. is uh, a country known for the most expensive urine in the world, right? right. <laughs> at the Olympics, at least. That's sort of the, the running joke. Uh, vitamin minerals, good, bad. I know you've said before that context matters. What, what is, what's, where do you stand on supplementation? It's a little complicated when it okay. comes to some supplementation. Now, if we're just talking about minerals, for example, right. minerals are really tricky yeah. because they are required as cofactors for a lot of enzymes. And because they're very small, a lot of these minerals are very similar in their structure, like magnesium and calcium. They're right, right. next to each other on their periodic table. They both have you know this two plus charge. And what happens is if you take a bunch of magnesium, you're supplementing with a bunch of magnesium, and you're not getting enough calcium, yeah. your, the enzymes in your body that need calcium start to take the magnesium mm. and it kind of trashes those enzymes. They don't work as well because they need calcium, not magnesium, mm. but they think, and this is, this is something that happens. Yeah. If you're gonna supplement with you know, minerals, I think you really need to be careful. You wanna make sure you're getting the right balance of them. You wanna make sure you're not getting too much as well of yeah. one or the other, so like magnesium, I've seen studies where they show that like the maximum dose you absorb from you know a single dose is somewhere like 123 milligrams. Okay. And anything over that's not bad. You'll sometimes you'll get like a relaxing effect in your yeah. in your gut, so it can you know help your bowels. It'll <laughs> help with peristalsis, you know. Sure. So, and there's other things as well. Right. I think that's been shown to do. But you know, taking like 700 milligrams of magnesium a day, and if you're not getting your calcium, that could be a problem. So I'm always you know a little hesitant about supplementing with minerals. Okay, all right. And in terms of vitamins, I think that... Now, hypothetically, you could achieve... Is it po do you think it's possible to achieve that type of disruption with natural foods? If you're consuming an overabundance of foods containing magnesium, do they, uh, do they typically also provide the calcium? You do, you do typically have the calcium there okay. with them. Okay. Uh, there, there seems to be a, a pretty balanced ratio. Okay. I don't know for certain if you were to like right. do excessive amounts of dark yeah. greens, but there are the calcium is also you know yeah. in the greens as well, okay. like kale and chard. Right, right. Um, so potassium's in there, you know. So yeah. and that's the other one, sodium, potassium. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, that's actually a really good question. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, well, I'm just I'm curious because uh, people seem to figure out a way to kill themselves with, with an excess of just about anything, including water. Where you'll you'll find people uh, die of uh, what is it? Uh, Hyponatremia, is it the uh, which would be uh, excessively low levels of sodium after overconsumption of water. Right. So the sodium potassium uh, pump ceases to work properly right. and they have right. heart attacks when they're running marathons, for instance. Especially in the US where there's this more is better mentality, it's, uh, I, always, I always wonder what the dose is that will make the poison, uh, even for the naturally occurring stuff. Anyway, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole yeah, uh, continuously. I think it's, less, it's obviously harder to achieve that than just popping a handful of pills, which you can do in a handful of seconds. You can. Yeah. And it is always good to be um, you know, 
aware of what doses you're taking with vitamins and minerals. In terms of vitamins, I think that there are widespread micronutrient deficiencies, as I mentioned. You know, yeah. 70% of the population has inadequate vitamin D, and we talked about vitamin K, magnesium, you know, there's calcium as well. There's a lot of these micronutrient deficiencies. So supplementation can be good because it can mm -hmm. help fill those gaps. Yeah. Um, however, you know, if you're a person that is unhealthy in terms of you have a disease like cancer, then all bets are off yeah. because cancer cells like everything that normal cells like, but it's like fuel for the fire. So for example, this is, you know, folic acid, mm -hmm. folic acid is a vitamin when we, we make full, you know, we need folate in our yeah. body, right? And folate's important for uh, thymine synthesis. So thymine is one of our DNA nucleotides. Yeah. So if you don't get enough folate or folic acid, supplement, supplementing with folic acid, you can actually cause your DNA to misincorporate uracil, which is part of RNA, into where the thymine's supposed to be. And this causes strand breaks in your DNA. It causes yeah. double strand breaks. Actually, we, our lab did an experiment where we did folate deficiency and compared it to like UV irradiation, oh. and it was just like getting UV irradiated, not having enough folate. Wow. So it can cause strand breaks in your DNA, which lead to cancer. Hmm. However, if you already have cancer, because cancer cells are you know, they've overcome a variety of different signaling pathways. They're growing and reproducing rapidly because of that. They're making daughter cells. Well, their daughter cells need DNA to make these cells. So they like stuff that helps their, make them have DNA. You know, if you're supplementing with folic acid and you have cancer, you're actually giving these cancer cells the precursors they need to make more cells. Huh. And if you think about one of the most famous, like, uh, chemotherapy drugs out there, methotrexate. It inhibits folic acid synthesis. Oh, interesting. Because it's, you know, these, these cancer cells are rapidly proliferating, you know, cells in your gut and your skin and also uh, hair, your immune cells, they're also rapidly proliferating cells and they get affected as well, but cancer cells... You yeah, know. you know, it's so tough because I, I think about a cancer a fair amount. A lot of my, of course, just with, if you have a couple million readers, I mean, eventually you're going to have a subset that suffers from cancer of various forms. So I've had very sort of personal experience with interacting with people in my family, but also in my readership yeah. with yeah. cancer. And it seems like by the time you're, say, 40 or 50, you have microscopic cancer cells, but they're it's, they are, it's a disease-free state in so much as they're not proliferating out of control. So then the question becomes, if you have the seeds of cancer cells, how do you behave? So for instance, right, and I know that uh, people all the way up to Sloan Kettering, in some cases are using, not methylphenidate, that's Ritalin, they're using glucophage, metformin, metformin. prophylactically to control their uh, fast, fasting glucose levels and uh, to obviously manipulate how their liver handles glycogen and, and things like this uh, so that they can avoid going pre-diabetic but keep it at an even lower state to effectively starve cancer cells of glucose, right? That's, right. The, that's the idea to extend lifespan, functional lifespan. So if you have the dietary interventions, right, which would be potentially limiting processed carbohydrate intake or high glycemic or high glycemic index, uh, load rather, um, foods, at what point do you decide to say, try to starve of, starve your body of folic acid, right? So for instance, I know that I, I appear to be a bad methylator and uh, have had a number of people recommend to me that I use L-methylfolate. 
Do you have an MTHFR yeah. polymorphism? Yeah, oh. I do have an MTHFR polymorphism. The MTHFR gene, also nicknamed the motherfucker gene, <laughs> for precisely that reason. Yeah, very highly related. So I do, I do have an MTHFR polymorphism and have been taking L-methylfolate, but like, all right, so now I'm 36. Right. I tend to follow a slow-carb diet, my fasting glucose, my hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of, I mean, vastly oversimplified, but like kind of a running average over three months of your fasting glucose level, all very good. But at what, po- like at, at what point, if I know that cancer cells are likely present in some nascent form, do I make changes? That's something that I struggle with, right? I don't know. Yeah. So Maybe you just keep tracking it until you have something that can be imaged. I think in the sense where you're, if you have, you know, a small amount of precancer cells in your body, having a good immune system becomes critical and you do, your immune system needs folate, you know? So right. I think focusing on having, having good mechanisms in play that can, you know, get rid of those precancer cells. So there's a variety of different mechanisms our body has, you know, right. when those happen, we activate genetic pathways like P53, which mm. induces the cell death of these cancer cells. We've got our immune system. If you, if yeah. you know, your immune system's working well, then it's going to, you know, kill those cancer cells. But something that this, you bring up a really important point, which also gets me back to this, this whole context thing is that, you know, you're t- what you're talking about is you've already, you've already initiated cancer. So you've already gone through that cancer initiation where you've acquired enough damage to make a cell abnormal. Right. Meaning what usually happens when you can't, cancer initiators are different than cancer promoters, which allow cancer cells to grow and proliferate. Right. Initiators are usually that damage to your DNA from oxidative damage, nitration, you know, UV. There's a variety of micronutrient deficiencies. Too much flying. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so basically you get a mutation in a gene that can end up having an abnormal cell. Once you have that abnormal cell, this is where promote cancer promotion comes into play, where you're, you know, things that can give growth factor signals. And this is where something like IGF-1. So uh, this is yeah, what I want to talk to you about because so IGF, well, I bring, you know, let's, let's jump into IGF-1, right? So just maybe you can explain what IGF-1 is. It stands for insulin-like growth factor one, but it's also something that has been promoted as, for instance, a, uh, a sports ergogenic, right? So right. you can use IGF-1 for performance enhancement, but continue. So IGF-1 does great things. I mean, IGF-1 yeah. is... Uh, it's downstream of growth hormone. Yeah. Um, so growth when your pituitary makes growth hormone, it you know induces the your liver to make IGF one. But also other things induce IGF one. Exercise for one, so you can really you know exercise is a potent inducer of uh, IGF one. What type of exercise? I don't know if there's a certain type. I know that exercise itself can induce the muscle cells to make it. So independent yeah. of the liver, so your muscle cells will make its own IGF one. Okay. So it's you know it's sort of a different mechanism yeah. than it going through the whole growth yeah. hormone pathway. Um, but a very potent nutrient inducer of IGF-1 is actually protein. Uh-huh. And there's a very good reason for that. Protein induces IGF-1 because IGF-1 activates the mTOR pathway, which is required for protein synthesis. So you, yeah. it makes sense that you, when you're you know, eating protein and you know, have, taking you in amino acids, you're, right, you're basically going to induce that whole pathway that's like, okay, I'm going to incorporate this to make new proteins in my yeah. body. So it's well known that protein is actually one of the most potent inducers of IGF-1, which is probably another reason why eating protein helps put, pack on muscle. Right. So IGF-1 is a very potent growth factor. It, it, it can promote the growth and the repair of skeletal muscle. Um, it also is very important um, for, it can cause neurogenesis in the brain, so it can cross yeah. blood-brain blood barrier. You can also make it, and it, it's, it, it's a growth factor, so it's, right. you know, 
helping your neurons grow. Yeah. So side, I note, definitely- side note, exercise, if you want better cognitive performance, get off your ass and do some exercise. Uh, not, quite aside from IGF. One, I mean, you have uh, BDNF, exactly, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, there's a book called Spark that gets into a lot of this, but the Cliff Notes is you want you want you know better better dendrite dendrite growth and and cognitive performance. Physically move, get out and physically move. Anyway, completely agree. So <laughs> so IGF one is good, right? Yeah. But there's a flip side, uh, and that flip side is first of all, if we're talking about um, IGF-1 activates AKT pathway, okay? Yeah. And AKT is, well, there's a lot of things. Um, one of it's involved in the glucose metabolism like you are talking about. But another thing that it does is that it inhibits something called FOXO, mm-hmm. which is a very important transcription factor. And FOXO, when FOXO is not inhibited, it gets into the nucleus and it activates a variety of genes that are involved in stress resistance, like... It activates a variety of antioxidant genes, genes that are involved in DNA repair, genes that are involved in degrading bad proteins. So and how does IGF-1 affect FOXO? So it negatively regulates oh, it. So when I was doing this research back at the Salk with worms, yeah. what, these worms have you know, genes that we have. It's really amazing. But when we would inactivate IGF-1, cut it off. Longevity went up. They, the, the worm would go from living 15 days to 30 Huh. And it was amazing because I would look at just a wild-type normal worm yeah. versus the one that we would inactivate their IGF-1 pathway. Yeah. And they would be, let's say it's, you know, 13 days. That 13-year-old or 13-day-year-old, you know, worm that was normal was, like, barely moving around. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, and this other dude was just moving. I mean, it was like a young worm. <laughs> James Dean of worms. It's just, ripping. yeah. And, you know, they, they've, they've done a variety of, you know, mechanistic, you know, investigations to figure out why and it, a lot of it has to do with the foxo pathway where it's like these uh, these worms are just resistant to stress so yeah so anyways worms, that's the yeah. one that's you know that's the a bad thing about having too much igf1 the other bad thing is the context if you if you're healthy and you don't have a bunch of precancerous cells well igf1 is great because it's muscle repair muscle growth neurogenesis you know but if you do have a bunch of cancer precancerous cells around it's not a good idea to have a lot of IGF-1 because it's a growth factor. It's a proliferative signal that's letting these cancer cells grow, 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 uh, grow, grow. So how do, you, how do you thread the needle and hit that Goldilocks point, right? Because the more I read, and this sounds so depressing, but the more I read about longevity, the more it seems that life is sort of a quality versus quantity proposition where you can, for instance, if you want to extend your lifespan as a male, there's a pretty compelling evidence that stopping ejaculating is a pretty good idea. Like the less you ejaculate, the longer you live. There's this, I could send you some weird stuff like looking at, at studies that have not been performed in humans, of course. But there are caloric restriction. Now there's, there's the debate of whether you need across-the-board caloric restriction to achieve the life extension uh, benefits that seem to correlate to caloric restriction. So maybe it's protein cycling, maybe it's uh, any number of things. But if you, let's say, you take a monkey, don't allow ejaculation, give them a subcaloric diet, like their hair thins out, their testosterone falls to the floor. Yes, they live longer, but they're miserable monkeys. Like they're just not very happy little monkeys. So what I what I have to wonder is, well, if I want like greater thermic effect of food, I want better cognitive function, da, 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 one could argue for a higher protein diet. That would give you a day-to-day superior experience. Right? I, feel free, to, I want you to like, pick anything apart that you can, but 
on the flip side, you are increasing IGF-1 and basically pouring fuel on a potentially fatal fire if you have precancer cells, right? Yes, and also the FOXO is getting inhibited. And the FOXO is getting inhibited, right? So you're having like a, a day-to-day superior experience with what would seem to be a Faustian bargain in cleaving off life extension benefit. So do you think that is a sort of either or proposition or how do you how do you get the both the, the best of both worlds? Is that possible? I think there is a possible way to get the best of both worlds. I think that, you know, I don't know, it depends on what eating a high protein diet means. For me, eating a high protein diet is like eating some sort of meat every day. If you're if you're looking at getting some of those benefits of having genes expressed that are involved in stress resistance, there's ways to do that through hormetic responses, hormesis, which is basically having, giving yourself a little bit of stress. Things like polyphenols, like the EGCGs and green tea, that's what they do. That's how they exert a lot of their, their positive effects is through a hormetic response where they activate NRF2, which and, and activates a whole host of genes involved in like glutathione peroxidase, all these antioxidant genes. Really? Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, heat stress, exercise, these are all forms of stress that stress your body. Right. And what happens is your body's response to that stress is to activate genes involved in stress resistance. Right. So I think that doing things that like a little hormetic responses where, you know, little types of good stress like heat yeah. stress, exercise, green tea, curcumin's another one that's also yeah. a hormetic. Yeah, um, yeah, red wine, stuff. the polyphenols in red wine do it. Yeah. Of course, there's the whole alcohol part. But anyways, so I think hormesis is a way to kind of get those stress response genes activated. Right. And, uh, you know, like the, prin- good- like the Princess Bride, like Wesley. He t- what is he? <laughs> I love that movie, no, no, but he, I'm just not following. No, he, he inoculates himself oh. against the oh, poison. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yep. To, to right, kill the right. Sicilian right, right, when right. death is on the line. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think that's a hormesis is kind of a cool way to do that. And then getting all your micronutrients, making yeah. sure your DNA repair genes are working, you know, because there's an environmental component as well. And environmental meaning the way we age, stochastic damage happening in our body from just damage, yeah. metabolism, our immune system, all that stuff is, it's breaking down stuff. It's causing damage to our DNA. It's causing damage to our lipid cell membranes, causing damage to our protein. And these things get dysfunctional yeah. over time. So making sure we can keep all those systems working well by yeah. getting those micronutrients is another great way. You know what would be really fascinating, man? My dream list of studies, right? And we can talk about the state of science and funding and all that as well. But just we'll we'll stave that off for for a little bit longer. The I would be really fascinating to look at the uh, sort of biochemical and genetic profiles of two cohorts. First cohort is high protein, moderate to low fat moderate to low carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. So very, very common. A lot of paleo folks, uh, a lot of, quote, you know, healthy folks who are just avoiding processed carbohydrates. And then in the second cohort, ketogenic people who are following very high fat, low carbohydrate, moderate protein diets, right? So the, the Atkins or even more so sort of epileptic diet, right? Yeah. Where they're right. consuming like cream and cheese and all of this stuff to see sort of what their FOXO status is. I'd be really curious to check that out. That would be very interesting. You know, I think that if you're looking at someone who's following from what my understanding is of a paleo diet, I think, you know, even though they're eating a lot of protein and getting a lot of IGF-1 because they're 
they're not getting all this other excess damage. And I think they try to get enough micronutrients, from my understanding. Oh, yeah, They sure. try to get a lot of these micronutrients as well from their greens. They're, and in fact, if you look at their, you know, inflammation levels, there's been some people, they don't call it a paleo diet in some of these studies, but if you look at what they eat, it's kind of paleo-like. Yeah. They've got low C-reactive protein, yeah. low inflammation, you know, so it's like, I think in that sense, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're eating protein, you're activating IGF-1, but you're exercising, you're, you're, you're not, you're cutting out all the other crap, you're getting all your micronutrients to the, repair the damage. You know, I think there, there might be a healthy balance there where you're yeah, not... It, I, well, it could also just be that, that everything you consume will have, as we currently understand them with our current state-of-the-art science, positive and negative effects, right? I do. And so it's not a matter of choosing good things and avoiding bad things. It's about choosing the right combination of things, all of which have pros and cons, so that your personal uh, balance sheet, if you're running a company, would be in the black and not in the red, right? And sort of choosing those combination factors. uh, Speaking of which, can you... Let's talk about uh, epigenetics a little bit. So I I brought up methylation and the mother... Gene and, right. and so on earlier, but we didn't really explain what that means. Could you explain to people what the, what methylation is? Maybe delve into that a little bit. Yeah, let me. I can explain a little bit about epigenetics and and the role that methylation plays in that. So mm-hmm. you know, epigenetics is basically referring to changes in gene expression, mm-hmm. and when you have a gene. It has to be expressed. It has to be expressed to be active, to do what it's supposed to do, to make the protein it needs to make to do that function. Yeah. And you, what you have here is um, your DNA is wound up in protein called histones, and this yeah. makes up your chromosomes, and they're wound yeah. up real tightly. And you'll have methyl groups, which can attach to certain regions of your DNA, yeah. CPG, CPG islands in your DNA. And usually when those methyl groups attach to your DNA, what happens is, uh, transcription factors have to come, Fox was one of those, come and bind to a promoter region of a gene to activate it, to turn it on. Okay. But when methylation groups are there, it's like physically impossible for right. that transcription factor right. to There's come There's something bind. covering that link yeah, switch. Yeah, it's you literally can't a physical yeah. block. Yeah. And so what happens is a gene will be turned, it's there, but it will be off. It won't be Got active. Mm-hmm. And so methylation usually refers to turning a gene off, but not always. Yeah. You can also have methylation of the, the histones. Yeah. So uh, acetylation is another epigenetic mark, acetyl groups, acetyl groups. Um, and is it acetyl or acetyl? I've always wondered, because I only read the damn thing. It, you know, it's, sometimes I call <laughs> like, it- Like, is it acetylcholine or acetylcholine? Acetylation, acetylation, you know what? It's, yeah. it's one of those potato, potato. You say tomato, I, I say tomato. It, I don't think yeah. there's really a convention. Okay. I hear both. All right, you know, all right. It's kind of like with autophagy and autophagy. I yeah. hear that in science, scientific yeah. seminars. Autophagy? Autophagy is actually Ooh. what I hear more that sounds frequent v- now. That very- Queen's English. I yeah, like it. autophagy. And so that sounds better than autophagy. Yeah, you'll get. A I, little... I used to say like democracy when I was a, a, a little kid, and it always bugged me. Like I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't say it the other way. So every time I say autophagy, I feel like I'm saying democracy. Right. So autophagy. Right. Autophagy. Ooh. That's. I think that's pretty standard. Now, yeah. But now, sorry. Side note. Autophagy side note. is a cell eating itself. Yeah. Or destroying itself? Yeah, it's destroying all the dysfunctional organs, like yeah. the dysfunctional mitochondria, ER, okay. and it's a very healthy thing to be able to do because you yeah. don't want nasty stuff building up in yeah, yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Ooh, I'm so happy that I have autophagy. autophagy. <laughs> my, my Glad I could help. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So I so, interrupted, though. So methylation is usually referring to these methyl groups effectively blocking the turning on of genes. 
Exactly. Got it. So um, what's really cool is so that... So when someone says they're a poor methylator, does that mean that they're bad at putting those methyl groups in place or that they're bad at then removing those methyl groups so that those genes can be turned back on? You know, I think when someone says they're a poor methylator, they probably don't know what they're talking about. I'm sure that's the case, so, which is why so I avoid saying it in the future. Yes. Um, <laughs> there, there, are, there are enzymes that add methyl groups on, and there are enzymes that uh, demethylate, and there's yeah. whole classes of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, the MTHFR is a specific enzyme that's very involved in the, the methylation pattern of homocysteine, methylating it back to methionine, you don't want a bunch of homocysteine. But, you know, it also does generate some of the methyl group. Like, so it's not that it's adding it, you're you're not adding it to your, all your other genes, but I think specifically the MTHFR. Got it. Enzyme. So I was told, yeah, basically the the sort of, the the diagnosis that I was given was uh, you have this polymorphism of the MTHFR which is an enzyme or a gene or neither? Is it a SNP? A I gene? Oh, oh, what the polymorphism is? Yeah. So, no, a poly, right. so a polymorphism is just a variation in in the gene. Right. That so, changes its. So you could have like nonsense allele or whatever. Right. And yeah. so you make you make a protein. The protein is this enzyme. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So the MTHFR is the enzyme. It's That's both. The, it's, it's there's both. a gene, and that gene makes an enzyme. Makes the enzyme. Okay, got so it. So your gene is the DNA, you know, blueprint, which then makes RNA. The RNA gets translated into protein. So. Got it. So I was told, like, all right, you have this this particular variant or polymorphism. Yeah, your blueprint MTHFR. <laughs> it's screwed up. You are a bad methylator. Therefore, you have more trouble recovering from exercise. That was roughly the the train of thought that I was delivered. So is is that accurate? Then I mean, it would, it would kind of make sense. If I have this variant that screws up my ability to, you're saying, take homocysteine and turn it into... Yeah, well, actually, that's, uh, it also does generate methyl groups that are used in this other cycle called the SAM cycle, which actually does make a lot of methyl, methyl groups for a variety of different other epigenetic um, marks. You know? so, so I think ultimately, someone with that polymorphism that doesn't, that's not aware of it yeah. can have, uh, not have enough methyl precursors around, yeah. Yeah, okay. if that makes sense, yeah, for yeah. other enzymes to go and add them to different gene regions. Uh, uh, I see. Uh, it's fascinating because diet and lifestyle can actually change that. There was a study, a classic study that was done at Duke University a few years ago, where they took mice that are uh, lab mice that, are, that have yellow fur, and they have yellow fur because a gene they have called the agouti gene makes them have blonde, have blonde hair, basically. Sounds like a line of handbags. It's really a bad thing, though, because <laughs> that, that same gene yeah. predisposes them to type 2 diabetes and obesity and cancer. So these mice Not come a good down trade with cancer. Off. Yeah, it's like blonde yeah. hair looks nice, but yeah. they get it fat, and they come down with cancer get faster. Fat and get cancer. Yeah, so what these, these um, researchers at Duke did was they took female mice, and they fed them a really high uh, folate diet and B12 uh-huh. three weeks before they got pregnant. And what they found was that the offspring of those agouti mice no longer had yellow fur. They had brown. Huh. Huh. And when they looked in their DNA, what they found was that the agouti gene had been silenced. Oh, wow. Methylated. Turned off the gene. Huh. So these mice no longer had blonde fur, and they also weren't predisposed to get cancer earlier, and they weren't obese. You know, this high folate diet in the female mouse before, you know, she was impregnated. Right. Turned off that agouti gene in her, in her eggs, actually. Huh. So... It's really kind of cool. There's other things. Stress, for example, yeah. inflammation affect methyl groups. So 
the whole epigenetic field, I'm like on this epigenetic kick right now. I just think it's so amazing. Now, epigenetic, just so I can uh, understand this, but also it's a term I've heard a lot. And epi, as I understand it, is sort of on top of, right? I mean, just like epidural mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, or epidermis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is, so epi is, epigenetics represents the class of, or the spectrum of factors, exterior factors, behavioral factors that can, that can affect your hardware, so to speak, right? Your, your genetics? Your blueprint, exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's, turn them on, turn it's them exactly, off. Exactly like you said, you'll have a methyl group sitting on top of your DNA in this per, really important region where it, you know, things need to bind to turn it on, yeah. and it'll stop it. Or you'll have acetylation in a part of your, mostly it's histones, which open up the histone DNA complex and allow stuff to come in. So it yeah. kind of does the opposite. Acetylation usually turns on genes. Huh. So epi, exactly, these things sit on top of your DNA and they turn them on or off just based on this, the, the, the sense that it. other things can't come in. Oh, I see. It's a physical... So the, me- so the methyl groups and the acetyl groups would be examples of epigenetics. Exactly. The oh, two well, best known examples. Which can be affected by diet, exercise, etc. Exactly. Affected I by see. stress, diet, Okay, so the epigenetics is not the exercise and diet that can affect... A, B, and C itself, it's actually those intermediary groups, like exactly. the, the methyl and acetyl yeah, groups. Exactly. And the cool thing about epigenetics is that hmm. you're, you, you're, they're, they're working on this right now. So they figured out the human genome. Now they're trying to figure out the human epigenome. Yeah. So that, you know, there's tons of genes, there are patterns of methylation, acetylation, all these things. And what they're finding is that you know, this, this stuff can actually be passed on to your offspring through the sperm DNA, through you know, egg you know, your eggs. So, well, not your eggs, but, you know. <laughs> Don't judge. You get it. <laughs> you know, so, it, like, I'll give you an example. There is another study that was published a couple of years ago. Actually, there's been a series of these studies where they take these male mice. Yeah. Um, it's kind of nice to work with males because, you know, then it's not, like, in utero. It's not something that's happening during yeah. pregnancy. They take these male mice, and they feed them a really high inflammatory diet, like corn oil, where they're just getting tons of omega-6 and just yeah. crap. Yeah. And these mice get obese and they get type 2 diabetes. Huh. But what they found is that they have offspring, female offspring, that are skinny. They, they feed their offspring a normal diet so they don't give them much of inflammation type of foods. Yeah. And these female mice are lean, but they get, they get type 1 diabetes. And what they found was that in the, the father, this corn oil diet, this inflammatory diet actually turned off a gene in the sperm DNA that's involved in the pancreatic islet cell oh, insulin Jesus. production. I know. Wow. Isn't that scary? Well, I mean, that's, epigenetics that's is kind of terrifying in the sense where you're like beholden to what your parents did, but yeah. they're also, you can, you can change your yeah, diet better lifestyle. Better stop drinking those phytoestrogen shakes <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, you know? right? So, wow, so that. You know, the epigenetic factors, it's basically you're altering the expression of your genes without actually doing an S, you know, any sort of nucleotide change. Yeah. There's no nucleotide change in the sequence of the DNA. It's just... It's like pimp my, pimp my DNA. Yeah, like on pimp my off. ride, right? It's like yeah. the, the chassis is the same. You're just slapping on God knows what. So here's the thing that's really cool that, that I recently... There's a paper, a, f- a series of papers that have been coming out over the last, I'd say, five years... Mm-hmm. Where they've been able to look at cell, aging cells... Yeah. And they've done it from, and they started out with, with, with blood cells from, from people. And they've been identifying these methylation patterns mm-hmm. as we age. So it seems as though, which makes sense to me because all these little, you know, all the inflammation, oxidative stress, all these factors are changing methylation patterns. And this is happening as we age. 
And they're finding now that there's absolutely, there seems to be a uh, systematic change in methylation groups. And they've been able to now look at these methylation patterns from blood cells in people and identify their age with 96% accuracy within four years. I mean, that's amazing to me. It's like, wow. So you're telling me you can look at someone's methylation pattern and yeah. tell them. It's, it's almost like measuring telomere length. Now, yeah, telomere yeah. length is also... Now, is, that, does it, is it corresponding to their, chrono, their calendar age or is it a biological great, age? Great, great question. So um, m- there are outliers. So it, it does correspond to their chronological age for the most yeah. part within four years, plus right. or minus. Okay. But there are outliers. And so now they're trying to figure out some people look biologically much younger than their chronological age. So their methylation uh, pattern looks right. younger. Really young. Right. And some people look much, biologically look much older than their chronological huh. age. And so then they started comparing males and females. Yeah. And they found that males had uh, their methylation patterns aged like 4% faster. Mm. It looked, looked 4% older than yeah, yeah. The, you know, the female counterpart. And then they started looking at cancer cells and cancer cells. And they'd, they'd get a cancer uh, tissue from a person, and then they'd get a tissue that was non-cancerous from the person. person and they'd found that the cancer cells looked like they were methyl- their methylation patterns were aged like 40% faster. Like the, huh. those cancer cells had accelerated their aging. Weird. It's really kind of... Cancer cells are so weird. Well, I mean, they're... They are weird. They, they're, yeah. they're, they're extremely smart. Yeah. I mean, they, they figured it out, yeah. you know, well, to a certain point, because then they take over the host and then they can't survive anymore. But yeah. um, the thing that really gets me is it seems like there may be a genetic program for aging. Yeah. And of course, people will say, well, no, aging's, you know, it's a stochastic damage. It's happening, you know. Yeah. And, and I think that's absolutely right. And as I, the more I think about it, I'm like, I'm thinking about, for example, our stem cells. Uh, we have genes that are not expressed in our stem cells for a reason. They're methylated. Um, one certain gene called ARF is methylated. And the reason ARF? is called ARF. Yeah, yes. like a dog. Yeah. Um, the reason why it's not expressed is because when it gets expressed, it causes senescence. It causes a cell to stop dividing. Mm. You don't want your stem, stem cells to stop doing that because you need your stem cells to replenish all the other cellular populations in that yeah. tissue. And so what they found is that this, this specific gene... We, when we're younger, don't express it in our stem cells. And as we get older, we start to express this gene. And the ARF gene. The ARF gene in our stem cells. And then our stem cells start to die off. And uh, what they found was that there's a demethylase, the enzyme that takes that methyl group off, that gets activated by something called NF-kappa-B, which is an inflammatory it, it, it's activated with inflammation. Inflammation activates NF-kappa-B. So you hit, like, you, you hit a critical mass of inflammation at a certain age, and that demethylates ARF? I think what's happening is, I think it's a chronic signal. I have this, I mean, this has to be tested. They've shown NF-kappa-B activates this group of demethylases called the Jumanji demethylases. <laughs> I know, isn't this great? great. And Jumanji... Isn't that a movie with Robin Williams? Yeah. No, no. No, yeah. <laughs> no I'm So these Jumanji... Um, uh, demethylases get activated and pull off these methyl groups. But what I think is going on is there's a chronic signal with age, and I think it's inflammation, mm. that's activating these enzy- these demethylases and it's changing the genetic patterns. So I think there's do you a think connection. That's, do you think that could be reversible? I do. Okay. I mean, I really think we are figuring out, first of all, we're figuring out how to reprogram our, our stem cells. Yeah. Now we can do that. So let, uh, stem cells, let's talk about it. So stem cells, uh, I've been interested and I just feel like the clock is ticking and now I'm getting to a point where my stem cells are no longer as good as they used to be. But the, the idea of banking stem cells, uh, 
and uh, harvesting stem cells from whether it's bone marrow or elsewhere so that you can uh, use them later. So to, that's one thing. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I just recently banked some stem cells of my own. You did? Yeah. How old are you? Shall I ask I'm, Thanks for doing it publicly. I'm yeah. 35. Okay. All right. So, so you know, around 36, I think I've done a lot more damage to myself. You look a lot younger. Oh, thank um, you. You're welcome. I look exactly my age or older. I felt like, I guess there has to be a benefit to doing it compared to like what better time than now, I guess. It would have been better, I assume, if I had done it some time ago. How did you how did you how did you bank your stem cells? Well, so there's a variety of different ways you can bank your stem cells. Um, cord blood is one, which I didn't yeah. that would have that was up to my parents. They didn't yeah. do that when that yeah. happened, so <laughs> right. I'm screwed there. Um, I would have been really impressed if they pulled that off. That, I would have been really <laughs> impressed. I would have been really impressed. But, Ahead of their time. Um, yeah. So the wisdom teeth have yeah. So I had two, I had impacted wisdom teeth. What does that, impacted mean? Well, they're coming in crooked and they're oh, hurting. Right, right, right. So I had to have them removed. Uh. And there's dental, I started doing all this reading. I was like, if they're, if I have to get these mother removed, yeah. there's gotta be some positive thing to it. So yeah. I started reading and I was, and I found out that there's um, stem, dental pulp stem cells huh. in the teeth. I have all my stem cells. Um, I have all my stem cells. I have all my wisdom teeth. Do you? Okay, so, yeah. so let me continue. Yeah. So there's dental pulp stem this cells. This is crazy. This all is, right. No, it's, I, I'm on top of it. Right. You, yeah. Uh. So um, uh, there's dental pulp stem cells in your wisdom teeth that can, because they're from a mesenchymal origin, which means yeah. they can form bone, they yeah. can form cartilage, right. they can form, you know, teeth eventually. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they can also be sort of coerced if you have the right stromo cells and like stuff around to neuro type of populations, right. neuronal type of populations. And right. what I found studies where they've took human wisdom, so they extracted wisdom teeth from humans, took right. out the dental pulp stem cells, and then they trans they did uh, mice where they had um, sp spinal cord damage, and they transplanted the dental pulp stem cells from the humans into the the spinal cord of these mice along with a variety of growth factors and cocktail things that are needed. Yeah, yeah, right. the cocktail of things. And it replaced their damaged motor neurons. That's crazy. From humans. From it, humans. So is, is there no risk of host rejection of that type of thing? What they do, yeah, there is. Uh, yeah. But they do a lot of things where they'll, they'll irradiate the, the bone marrow and like make the immune system so it doesn't like respond to the right. foreign stuff. There's all these crazy things they do for that. Wow. But the other cool thing is that in Italy, they did the first clinical trial where they took the, the dental pulp stem cells from the extracted tooth and they regenerated bone in the person. Oh. So, you know, these studies have been coming out. They're relatively new. So anyways, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. So then yeah. I looked up, you know, companies that potentially could bank my, my teeth. Yeah. Um, and I found uh, a couple of companies that, that I had thought were pretty trustworthy. You know, mo most that of them. I had a sign at an intersection, like, <laughs> right? all now banking. Most, <laughs> most of them were like, they had already been doing the cord blood. So it's like yeah. they're doing the cord blood and they've been doing it for like 40 years. And they're also doing now the, the teeth. Huh. And so um, what they do is they'll send your oral surgeon a kit, which is essentially like a balanced um, saline solution. Yeah. And they'll, the oral surgeon will take out your wisdom teeth and put it in this saline solution, send it back to them. And then they will cryopreserve the tooth of liquid nitrogen. Well, they do a little bit of manipulation, but not much. They don't want to take out the stem cells until you actually need them. So that it's, right. it's good. I did all this reading on the procedure, and I yeah. like let me talk to your cell biologist. I want to see what your procedure is, and I figured out you know because these guys yeah. are doing it right because I you know looked looked through huh. the way it's supposed to be done. Anyways, you know it it was about six hundred and twenty five dollars for 
the whole nothing. thing. Yeah, and then it's $125 a year. And my husband yeah. got, he had to have one of his uh, wisdom teeth removed, so he banked his. Yeah. Primary teeth are a really great source of kids. Yeah. They have even more dental bulb stem cells in their uh, teeth that they you just throw when, away. Oh, wow. You know? So if your kids are so losing teeth, parents... Yeah, stem save is one. Get yourselves a balanced saline solution. So, what would you say? Stem Stem save is one of the 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 companies, and then there's National Dental Pulp Laboratory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stem save is more memorable. What was the other one? National National Pulp Pulp Dental Laboratory. (laughs) Yeah, I actually went with them just because I uh, spoke to their cell biologist and went through the whole. I went through the whole. I'm sure they were irritated with me. Where they where they based? uh, They're in New England. Okay. Area so. Makes sense, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. So in Boston somewhere, with all yeah. the biotech. Yep. So cool stuff, right? Yeah. But the the other cool thing is the reprogramming part, what I was talking about, where they can yeah. take your skin cells. Yeah. They can even take what is the difference, just to start interjecting, yeah, yeah. between the modifier mesenchymal and the the modifier pluripotent? Because they seem to indicate the same thing. Are they different? Yeah, so pluripotent those okay mesenchymal is like the part of this origin of the cell where it came from pluripotent means like for example if you have a bone marrow cell yeah bone marrow can form like blood cells it can form your red blood cells white blood cells you know there's they, yeah. they have a distinct limit to the type of cells they I can see. form a multipotent means you can actually form multiple different types of cells so you can take a multipotent stem cell and you can form heart cells, you can form liver cells, you can form blood cells. Totipotent means, I mean, Wikipedia people. So, right, right. You know. Anyways, the cool thing is... And then is, mesenchymal. Oh, the mesenchymal just means um, the, the, the type of uh, tissue that it came from, like, you know, the, the origin... People me- use mesenchymal and pluripotent interchangeably, which is why I'm trying to figure... No. They do not. So, no, all right. I don't think they do. Okay. Yeah, mesenchymal. I'm not saying that people recur- know what they're talking about. Do yeah. They? Oh, oh, you're saying you've heard people. <laughs> I've heard people use no, the no, no. That's not interchangeable. All right. No, all right. no. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So good to know. Yeah, they're wrong. All right, got it. <laughs> Brought a good question up with the pluripotent, multipotent, because actually, what's really cool now is that we can take a a cell, a skin cell that's terminally differentiated. I mean, fibroblasts. They're not stem cells. Yeah. And. People I figured out actually, um, I think his name is Shinya Yamanaka. Sounds Japanese. Japanese. Now he was in Kyoto, Japan, when he yeah. uh, first made this discovery in 2006. It was a freaking game changer in my yeah. opinion. It looks super cool. Well, I'm guessing most countries outside the U.S. are far beyond us in research, just due to sort of the legislative and regulatory issues that yeah. lead then right. to funding issues. Right. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, work ethic. I think a lot of Japanese. Um, yeah, they're hard workers. They're hard workers. Yeah, so I knew one that would uh, had a cot and would sleep in the lab. Yeah, well, they have, that's why they, I mean, they have a term for death by overwork there. Well, kadoshi, kadoshi, yeah. Kado. I, I'm not surprised. Ka is too much, ro is like working, and then she is death. She also means, uh, well, yong or she is four, which is why a lot of uh, Japanese and Chinese are superstitious about the number four. So if people ever wonder, they think that's weird. It's kind of like 13 for oh, uh, West, a lot of Western cultures. That's why they don't like the number four. I know that. Uh, so uh, Shinya Yaman, what was it? Yaman, Naka? No, Yaman. Yamanaka. Yeah. I think. I, oh, I hope I didn't betray it. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Anyways. Yamanaka is like Jones. It's one of those. Is like, it? Okay. So things. then probably right. Yeah, or Yamaguchi. Yama, who the hell knows? Right. Yama. Really, really, really common. Yeah. So um, he figured out, he had looked at these patterns of gene expression and stem cells. And he'd figured out by looking at a variety of different ones which ones are really important 
for these stem cells that could be multipotent, could form multiple tissues. And uh, what he found was that there's four different transcription factors, those genes that like activate a variety of different genes. When I was talking about yeah. those, like Fox was one of them. Yeah. He found four of them that were required for a stem cell to be multipotent. Okay. And what he did was he took like fibroblast cells. First they started out with mice and then they've done it in humans. But the first study was in mice where they took fibroblast cells and they... What is a fibroblast cell? Um, skin. Okay, got it. Yeah. Blasted it with all those. Blasted it with those four. Well, they, the way we can do it is we can put it in a virus, a viral yeah. background, and, and the virus will then That's the incorporate uh, viral retrovirus vector. or... Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a vector, right? Yeah. And you can put that's the how gene... they do it. Yeah, gene therapy. Exactly. That's exactly how they're doing yeah. it. So and then gotta be careful with that stuff. You do well in this case. They're using a retroviral backbone, which means that this that's virus what I meant. not virus the retroviral. Right. It'll it'll incorporate. It'll use its RNA transcriptase to make DNA, and it'll incorporate to random places in the chromosome. So you don't yeah. know it could be going anywhere. Yeah. You know, and that the potential you know harm in that is that you can actually um, get it in a place where it's like an oncogene where it can cause cancer because yeah. you're screwing up stuff. So. But you avoid that. And avoid instead, that. And instead, you make this freaking skin cell, a multipotent stem cell, where now they were able to make it turn into a neuron. They can make it turn into a kidney cell. They can make it turn into a liver cell. In which case, you don't have to worry about banking your stem cells. Exactly. In which case, you don't have to worry about banking your stem uh, cells because now you can just take your skin cells. They've even been able to, they can, they've uh, done it from the urine, uh, what are the renal, the renal fibroblast cells that you excrete in the urine, huh. those cells. Wow. In the urine, which is non invasive. You, you know, yeah. pee and they can isolate these cells. Wow. Add these four transcription factors. So you could be like, yeah, too bad I drank like an alcoholic for 20 years, but that liver cirrhosis, ah, whatever. Like, let me just grab my Mormon yeah, neighbor's I'm, pee and like I, I, make some stem cells. There. We yeah. are heading there. I mean, right now, you know, we can do this. Low efficiency. They're now working on finding, the problem is, is that some of these transcription factors like CMIC, which is one of the ones that is required, is also cancer promoting. Yeah, right. So, you know, they found that, you know, like if you're if doing this in mice, 20% of the mice will get cancer. So they're trying to figure out the subtleties. I think my, I don't know, I could be totally just making, I like to make yeah, connections yeah. and come up with new possibilities, but I'm thinking that in this new way they can um, do gene therapy with this t targeted, I, I didn't read the paper, it came out recently, this new technique yeah. that they can do. I think they like use caspase or something where they can actually target a gene and put in the exact locus where it's supposed oh, to be wow. instead of it randomly instead incorporating of kind of shotgunning it exactly huh. and so what i if if i were working on that i would take advantage of that system and try to see if that if you now use that system to deliver it to this hmm. you know fibroblast cell getting it in the right spot how far away do you think that is from sort of consumer use because of course like People could hold out. We were talking about auto driving, you know, self-driving right. cars earlier. Right. But it's, uh, I think it's going to happen a lot faster than people expect. But it's still going to be a few years. So in the meantime, like you should learn how to drive. Right. <laughs> right. So the, would you recommend that people hold off for that, or do you think that banking cells is a good insurance uh, insurance policy? I think banking your cells now, like if you, you know, for example, if your kids are losing their teeth, or you're, you've, you've got a couple of wisdom teeth, or what if you don't have any wisdom teeth? What, what would your second choice be for banking? Obviously, if you're a female yeah. um, and you're going to have a child, yeah. something that's really cool that came out, I don't know, four or five years ago, I think, where they found the placenta. Yeah. The placenta is like a really rich source of multipotent stem cells. Huh. And I haven't actually done any uh, investigating yet on whether or not there's companies banking that. I would be shocked if they weren't. Yeah. Um, 
but that's another really good source. Cord blood, stem cells, teeth, um, males' teeth. I mean, I, you males know. are just a, <laughs> I think, you know, well, the a bone dearth of opportunities. Invasive, and yeah. you know. So there's a, a buddy of mine, also a fascinating guy. You you might uh, enjoy meeting him at some point. Maybe you've met him, Daniel Kraft. Have you ever met? No. He's a, he's an MD, very fascinating guy. Is he in, guy. This, in the Bay Area? Yeah, he's in the Bay Area. Yeah. He, I, I got to know him through the, through Singularity University. I was an advising faculty member at <laughs> NASA Ames, where they were running uh, Singularity University. I think they still are, and I uh, got to know each other because he develops process and technology for bone marrow harvesting and uh, so i've been meaning to reach out to him right <laughs> to right say. yeah but uh, yeah it's invasive is kind of an understatement i mean it's <laughs> i don't think it's very um i think it's painful basically <laughs> yeah i think there are less painful ways to do it i mean given all the crap i've done to myself i'm sure it would be just another kind of although getting your teeth yanked out i mean i was not exactly walking no, the park it, well it wasn't painful it was like psychologically screwed me up because i was like twilight so you know, I was calm, but like Twilight, like the werewolf Twilight. The, the Twilight, no, like kidding. you know, you know, I was like, I thought they were gonna put me under. I was like, yeah, just put me under. Oh, they didn't. They were just like, no, no, just hold still. They put me in. It was like I was, I was like relaxed and calm. But <laughs> like, I was like, wait a, mar- a minute, I'm have still a martini. awake. You ready? Yeah, I'm still awake. This is really, you know, I was like pulling your teeth. I mean, oh, it, Jesus. It, it's yeah. It was. It wasn't pleasant, but I got my, I got my teeth craft reserved. They are some. They are in New England now, and. uh you know, liquid nitrogen. So, so. Bes- besides besides the dental pulp stem cell storage, what other types of things are you doing to potentially, you know, extend healthful lifespan? What are the other kind of low-hanging fruit? What other things are you thinking of? Well, low-hanging fruit is what we started this conversation with, micronutrients. Yeah, fix your, I really, fix your diet. I really, and not just, yeah, really focus on these micronutrients. They're, yeah. you know... You've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of enzymes in your body that require these minerals and vitamins as cofactors to function. And you know what? You're not going to notice these things not functioning right. It's just not, you're not going to notice it when you look in the mirror. It's not, you know. So taking care of those micronutrient inadequacies really is the low-hanging fruit. It's just, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's work, I guess, but it's a lot easier than... It's also routine, though. I mean, it's a habit that you get into. Right. Just like anything else. That's why the Vitamix, for me, it makes it so much easier because, you know, while I do also eat salads and I I also, you know, cook my vegetables, too, and I, I... Getting that broad spectrum, like... I think there's micronutrients in there we probably haven't even discovered. Oh, I'm sure 100% yeah. there are. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I am too. Yeah. I'm convinced. We, you Definitely. know. So, and, and and not only that, you know, biology is so complex. I mean, yeah, there yeah. is nothing more complex than biology. No yeah. technology will ever 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 compare. Yeah. So, we don't even understand how everything's working. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and so making yeah, sure Yeah, I would imagine, you know, 20 years from now we're going to look back at the state of the art today and it's going to look like leeches and bloodletting and phrenology. Right. Uh, it's going to be like holy shit. I can't believe we used to do that. I think the stem yeah. cell reprogramming is is huge. Well, in the it's huge like I'm shocked I don't hear more people talking about it. it you know, in the next 10 years I mean, we're talking about regenerating. I think, I think there's such a unwarranted stigma associated with stem cells because of the religious furor over embryonic stem cell use. And it just Maybe you're right. it completely threw the scientific research 
sort of to the side of the road uh, in the last administration. So it's, it's really unfortunate that sort of mass misinterpretation of the options right. led to this lack of funding. And right. like, you know, I mean, your day job is researcher, right? right? And uh, you're working within institutions. And it's like, if something politically falls out of favor, and, people are, and, and there are other people who are interested in getting tenure or whatever the f*** it might be, or be remaining on the board of blah, 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 of the right. journal A, B, and C, exactly. funding's just not going to... It's not going to. Not going to appear. It's not yeah, going to happen. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't materialize out of right. nowhere. To your point, though, I think that uh, we were chatting about this before we started. How, when it comes to diet, there's such a focus on what not to eat, mm-hmm. right? Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And that's the extent of the guidelines for a lot of folks. Now, I do think there's a benefit there. Like, don't eat refined carbohydrates. Fantastic. But the absence does the absence of bad things does not guarantee the presence of necessary things. It doesn't. Right? It doesn't. And so what I try to do uh, very often with people who are, say, 200 pounds overweight, 100 pounds overweight, whatever it might be, and I've met many, many, many readers who have now lost, you know, over 150, 200 pounds. I mean, amazing amounts of weight. I've personally met wow. at least a dozen, and there are uh, many, many others. And the way that I have people like that start, because it's too overwhelming to give them 100 rules, it's too restrictive and unrealistic given their current set of behaviors to say, change these, you can no longer do these 12 things. And I'll say, all right, we're gonna start with what to add first. So like you need 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. You need uh, you know, a fist size serving of green on any plate that you eat off of. That's it, those are the two things you're gonna do. And, or like start drinking water, how about that? You know, like no more drinking calories. Just like one, like one tiny thing. But the additive stuff would be is so beneficial. Like so, the way that I I generally interact with those folks is I'll say, look, you can eat. You have to eat the following things. After that, if you're still hungry, eat whatever the f- you want. You could have like 15 liters of ice cream. I don't care. But you have to get these cover these bare necessities, these bases first. And I think that that's such a uh, for whatever reason, an uncommon approach in the U.S., where it's usually a sort of a, a no smoking sign that gets placed on a handful of things, and that's the extent of the guidance. Right. But it, anyway. yeah, it, you know, it's like it, it makes sense. You know, your body is designed; it's very resilient. We are we can deal with stress. We have a whole host of enzymes in our body and proteins that deal with crap. Yeah. But those things need cofactors to do that. Yeah, so right. it's like you said, I wouldn't say 15 gallons of ice cream, but you know, the point is, <laughs> leaders, give leaders, your body, let's not go crazy. Yeah, no, right. no, no, give no. your body what it needs. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I can say that understanding full well, that they will not eat the 15 liters of ice cream because if they, if they're getting enough, uh, if they're getting the, the enzymes, if they're consuming fibrous mm-hmm. greens, people are c- constantly amazed. They're just, I'm just like, look, you don't have to eat. This is part of the reason why, for for instance, I'm a proponent, oftentimes, of legumes and beans and whatnot. Right. Somewhat, kind of hilariously, controversially among the paleo community, because they help to control glycemic response and the fiber content and the 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 duration of digestion prevents overeating. I personally like yeah. consuming uh, legumes and I like I love lentils. lentils I love eating. Yes. Because, you know, these, these fibers, you know, the, the, the fiber in them gets, you know, broken down into short-chain fatty acids in the gut. I mean, this is great for your gut. Yeah. You know, keeping yeah. your gut happy yeah. is so, it's so important in so many ways. And that, that would be a whole other topic for, like, 
you know, you just, <laughs> gut health. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I, I it's kind of weird how the the paleo community was against. I, I don't know who started that meme, but well, it comes down to a lot of the the stuff that we were talking about, the anti nutrients. Oh, oh, it, right. It's, it's related to the that. And lectins, but lectins le- get heat inactivated. Well, that's yeah. that's also this, this anyway. Is, this is a whole separate story. Right. Yes, I mean the the lectins, saponins, and all of this. Right in my experience, typically get either inactivated or removed with conventional preparation or cooking. The thing is, is I think it comes back to this focusing on, not focusing on what not to eat, not focusing on, you know, I mean, plants have a whole host of, you know, genes in them and proteins in them that are, you know, insecticides and pesticides that are being produced to keep bugs away themselves, like without us putting, you know, so it's like, you can focus on every little bad thing that's in something. I mean, there yeah. is, there is, you know, you'll find it in everything. Yeah. In everything. Right. So it's like, I think a better approach, rather than focusing on these little minute possible bad things that are may or may not, you know, do something, is focusing on what our body needs to function properly, like indefinitely. Like, you know, you just you need to make sure that you are getting the things that you need for your body to deal with stress. You need to make sure yeah. that you need, you're getting the things that you need to make, you know, make sure your body can deal with DNA damage, that it can deal with like all the crap mm-hmm. of just normal living, metabolism, yeah. immune function. These things yeah. produce inflammatory molecules like are also reactive nitrogen species, reactive oxygen species. These things are just from normal living. Yeah. You know, so. Agreed. I am getting, you're, you're making me Jones for a, uh, a Jake Shields green drink. Uh, that is a local MMA fighter, and there's a place called Sidewalk Cafe down in the Mission that uh, serves uh, freshly blended greens. Awesome. So I think that is is probably going to be my next stop. But we could talk about tons of things for hours and hours and hours. I'm sure we'll do a round two. But uh, in the meantime, obviously during the days you're you're still working in, in the labs. Uh, but where can people find more about you and follow you online? They can find me at foundmyfitness.com. That is my Twitter name as well, Found My Fitness, mm-hmm. and my Facebook name. And uh, it's the name of my platform where I cool. break this all down for people. Awesome. Well, this is super fun stuff, very important stuff, and uh, to be continued. So thanks very much for, for making the time. Awesome. It, it was a blast. Yeah. All Until right. next time. Thank you. Cool. If you want more of the Tim Ferriss Show, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to 4hourblog.com where you'll find an award-winning blog, tons of audio and video interview stories with people like Warren Buffett and Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park, the books, plus much, much more. Follow Tim on Twitter at twitter.com slash tferris. That's T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tim Ferriss. Until next time, thanks for listening.